This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm with Dr. Marjolene Kars. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. We're here to discuss her newest book, Blood on the River, a chronicle of mutiny and freedom on the wild coast, published by the New Press in 2020. Welcome to New Books Network, Marjolene. Uh, thank you, Sharika. It's really uh, delightful to be here. Let us begin with you sharing a bit about your intellectual and professional background. Okay, well, I was trained as an early Americanist, um, and uh, my first book was on the American Revolution. Uh, it dealt with a farmer's rebellion in North Carolina just before the start of the American Revolution and their attempt at creating greater economic democracy for themselves. And when I finished that book, I was really eager to sort of um, expand uh, early America, to, to move beyond early America and to look at something in the Atlantic world. I was interested in the Dutch because that is my background. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go to the Netherlands where my family lives, go to the National Archives there and take a look at what's in those archives that might move me out of early America. And so I went to the National Archives in The Hague, and I began to look um, um, through their catalog. At that time, it was still a card catalog. And I found all these records about a place I'd never heard of called Berbice, which turned out to be a Dutch colony in South America. And within those records, I found all these records about a slave rebellion that I had never heard of. And I had uh, done a field in African diaspora in grad school. I had done quite a bit of work on enslaved uh, people in the early in, in early America, and yet I had never heard of this rebellion. And so I checked with some of my professors in grad school, and they all said, oh, sounds really interesting. And so I decided to work on this rebellion, which put me back in the 1760s, made me look at a rebellion once again, but this time not of free farming people, but of enslaved farming people, and not in North America, but in South America, and not in the British Empire, but in a Dutch colony. That's yeah. That's a that's a dream come true to to just kind of discover a set of um, sources that have perhaps been forgotten or not previously interrogated. And I'm I'm looking forward to talking more about how you use um, that cachet of, of of documents. 
But I was thinking for our listeners, um, as you noted, many people probably have never heard of this um, Dutch or former Dutch colony of, of Berbice. Could you perhaps um, set the scene a little bit, perhaps explaining um, why were the Dutch there um, in the 18th century, a little bit perhaps about the, the location in, in, in South America? Sure, sure. Um, so the Dutch had actually been trading um, on what they call the Wild Coast since the late 1500s. And this was an area in northern South America. Berbice is now part of the Republic of Guyana, which is located north of Brazil. And it's wedged between Venezuela on the west and Suriname on the east. So it's on the Atlantic uh, Ocean, and it's, it's, it's really considered to be part of the Caribbean. And the Dutch had been trading there with Amerindians since the late 1500s. And by the early 1600s, this Dutch merchant from the province of Zeeland in the Netherlands decided to settle permanently, to, to make a permanent settlement there. And he, he um, obtained a patroonship, which is sort of, was sort of like a hereditary fiefdom, which allowed him to send men uh, to that part of the world and uh, and to open a trading post. And he did so in 1627. He was part of the West India Company, the Dutch West India Company. He was uh, very involved in international trade. He, set his, he sent his son to start that colony there. And initially, the colonists uh, grew tobacco and they traded with Native Americans for a... Uh, a local dye that native women made that the Dutch used to color textiles and cheese. Um, and they traded in other goods that Native Americans produced. And they also did some trading in uh, enslaved native people. Um, and so over the course of the 17th century, the Dutch create this small colony there, probably in uh, obtaining enslaved Africans sometime in the first half of the 17th century, by the 1660s, when um, we have some records from that place, there are already some sugar plantations there that are worked with enslaved African laborers. We don't know a lot about Berbice in the 17th century because most of the records burned, burned uh, in various bombardments in the 19th and 20th century, or because it was owned by a private man that the records never made it into the archives. And then in the early 18th century, Berbice, the, the, the family sells Berbice to a group of investors from Amsterdam, and they set up the so-called Society of Berbice, the Company of Berbice in 1720. Uh, they sell stocks, and they exploit the colony thereafter as a joint stockholding venture. Um, they begin to really invest in coffee plantations because coffee is just becoming a big crop in the 1720s. The only plantations where sugar is grown in Berbice are uh, company plantations, and there are about 10 of them. And everybody else, the so-called private plantations in the hands of private planters, they grow uh, coffee and cocoa and cotton. So it's not predominantly a sugar colony. The great majority of people do not 
grow sugar in Berbice. But it, it remains a relatively small colony. It's, um, it's a subtropical place. So um, the plantations are all built along the river Berbice and its, tribut- its tributary called the Kanji River. And so it's an oddly shaped colony. Uh, plantations are built uh, starting around 25 miles from the ocean inland because that's where the land no longer floods really badly. And then they are like strung like like beats on a string on both sides of the river for about 80 miles. So it's this long skinny colony on the Berbice and an even smaller skinny colony on the Kanji River. And beyond that stretches Savannah, which is um, grasslands with bushes and subtropical rainforest. And so Dutch control outside this sliver of plantations is virtually nil. Those areas are completely still controlled by various Amerindians, Arawak, Carib, um, and a number of other groups. And on the eve of the rebellion, there are perhaps 5,000 enslaved people in Berbice. We're not even entirely sure. Um, And probably 350 enslaved Native Americans and another 350 Europeans. Only about, of those Europeans, probably only about half are Dutch and the others are Germans and French and Scandinavians and uh, Eastern Europeans. Um, so it's it's a small place. It's a subtropical place. Most plantations are relatively small, anywhere from five to 30, 40 people. Company plantations are the largest, and those may have up to 120 people on them. So it's a, it's a place where contact between enslaved Africans and Europeans is pretty intense. Um, but... Europeans are also vastly outnumbered, as they are, of course, in most of the Caribbean. Your description of um, colonial Berbice, you know, is, is, is really in depth, and, and and you can, you know, I can imagine myself um, transported to the 18th century. And for our listeners um, who may not have read your book yet, um, they're unaware that you you went to present day Guyana to to get a sense of. Um, you know the, the the place, and obviously, probably to 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 look for more sources. Um, how might we compare um, Guyana today um, in terms of its physical um, description with what you were able to glean from the sources in the 18th century? Um, yes, I, I did go to uh, to Guyana uh, to to look at the landscape, to talk to people, to see what indeed was available in the archives there. In the 18th century, uh, Guyana is really a riverine place. All the contact people have with each other happens along the river um, in dugout canoes. And the Dutch uh, moved about in so-called tent boats, which were flat boats with a little awning built on them so that the Europeans could sit out of the sun. And those boats were rowed by enslaved people, sometimes by native people. Um, but but uh, most enslaved people would have had access to canoes uh, and would have used canoes to go up and down the river. And that is still true today, too. Guyana is um, a large country, but it has only about 800,000 people. 
It's not very uh, big in terms of population. It has not much in the way of roads because most of the country is jungle. And so still people use the rivers to move up and down. Of course, now they have motorboats, although many people also still use dugout canoes um, to to move along the Berbis and the Kanji River. Um, I did a fair amount of traveling up and down the river in a little motorboat that was uh, piloted by a man who lived uh, near the uh, ranch on which I was staying. And the ranch on which I was staying, that was called uh, Duboulay Ranch, used to be a company plantation called Perobom, which I could find on my 18th century maps. And in fact, when you put an 18th century map and a modern map next to each other, they're incredibly similar much of the land along the Berbice River is still known by the names of these former Dutch plantations. Much of the, uh, there are almost no, there are no Dutch buildings left. They have all been broken down, overtaken by the jungle, or people have slowly demolished those buildings using every brick in them, in their own houses. Um, most people live in small houses that are built on stilts, because if you're built on stilts, then more air can circulate. Um, nowadays, I think many people have electricity. But when I was there about 15 years ago, they did not. Um, and folks knew each other all up and down the river. And there were, in fact, now fewer pe- people living along the river than there were in the 18th century. So there are many similarities. Of course, Berbice is also rapidly developing. Uh, Guyana is. So things are changing, but um, but when I was there, there there was there was quite a bit of overlap, and people are were incredibly friendly and uh, willing to help, and uh, and ferried me around in their boat, so I could go look at some of these places. Really, the only place where there are still ruins are is Fort Nassau, which was this little hamlet which the Dutch called New Amsterdam, sort of smack in the middle of the colony where the Dutch governor lived, and there there was a fort called Fort Nassau. Um, and there's a little bit left of that uh, today still, and a couple of old Dutch graves. Um, but it's very hard to preserve things in the jungle. You know, things grow very rapidly, and um, and there's not a whole lot of money for historic preservation. Hmm. Well, you... You talked about how this project came to you in part because of a discovery of a a cache of documents, but also because you've been interested in themes surrounding rebellion. And I thought that we might um, turn our attention to the uprising. Why did the rebellion begin? And which of these maybe 5,000 or so enslaved peoples became involved? Well, I should probably explain a little bit about the the records that I found, uh, because what makes the Berbice Rebellion unusual is really two things. One, it lasted lasted more than a year, which is relatively unusual. There are many, many rebellions in the Atlantic world uh, by enslaved people, but they often didn't. They were either very small or they were quickly suppressed. The Berbice Rebellion is very lengthy. Um, and um, the records are really extensive. When I got excited in the archives, it was because not only were there lots of colonial records, the Dutch governor kept a daily journal for 
for instance, that when I transcribed it came to 450, I think, single-spaced pages on my computer. There were lots of letters from colonial officials to the Netherlands back and forth, reports from military commanders and so on. But there were also almost 900 um, investigations of uh, uh re-enslaved people when the rebellion was being suppressed in 1764, which uh, which gave me, to some extent, and we can talk about this more later, the, the voices of the enslaved. And there were also letters from uh, the rebels to the Dutch governor and uh, letters back from the governor uh, to the rebels. So the, the records were unusual and extensive because when we look, for instance, at the Tacky's Revolt in Jamaica, which happened in 1760, similarly a very long uprising about which Vince Brown just wrote a wonderful book. In Jamaica, there are no judicial records left. And so um, the, the voices of the people involved in that rebellion are much more muted than, than they are in Berbice. And so the, the rebellion breaks out in February of 1763. And I write in the book quite a bit about the beginning of the rebellion, both from the Dutch point of view, but but also from the um, from the point of view of the African descended people um, who had huge decisions to make. Um, I, I sort of compare it in the book to often when revolutions happen, people can feel it coming, and they have long periods of time in which to decide, like in the American Revolution, whether they want to join or not. Um, Enslaved rebellions are often known only to the small group of people who are going to start it in order that it not be uh, revealed. And so for the people who were not in on it, they have to make sort of split second decisions about what are they going to do. And what I find in Berbice is that people's reactions ran the gamut as they do in all revolutions and rebellions. Um, And that is actually one of the reasons I was interested in this rebellion. I knew from my work on the American Revolution that in the American Revolution, there were a number of people who who supported the so-called patriots, the the rebels, the American rebels. A number of people supported the Uh, the British, and large numbers of people sort of wanted to stay uninvolved, either because they didn't want to choose or because they could see that the revolution wasn't going the way they wanted to, and they wanted a different revolution than the one that was happening. And so I was wondering, if you have a big uprising like you do in Berbice, are the dynamics similarly complicated? And it turned out that they were, because while some people might think that Of course, enslaved people were always ready to rebel. And as soon as there was an opportunity, everybody would do that. It wasn't like that because for many people, what came first and foremost was survival, making sure their kids were okay, making sure any older people were okay. And so some people joined the rebellion enthusiastically. Uh, Others uh, stay on the side of the Dutch, though their numbers are small. And then large groups of people, I think, tried very hard to stay on the sidelines. They were happy the Dutch were gone. They certainly plundered the houses of the Dutch and took back what their own labor had wrought. Um, But they were also wary of the rebels and 
uh, and they were eager to maintain their own independence. And so people's reactions run from enthusiastic participation to all the way to avoidance and even, in some cases, collaboration. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. That is one of the, I think, the the strengths of your your book, and it was it was just so beautifully written. But one of the things that I really took hold to was the way that you showed how these enslaved peoples had to make really really difficult decisions, as you've laid out, and it was it was very intentional. I, I could feel the the urgency and the the sort of split minute decisions that needed to be made. And I also appreciated um, your discussion about the the ways in which freedom then becomes um, conceived. Um, and, and I was hoping that you might speak a little to that. How did these enslaved peoples who are wrestling to make um, very quick minute decisions conceiving of freedom? Yeah, I, I think as in the American Revolution, for instance, which listeners might know more about, People had different ideas of what freedom ought to mean. I think for all of them, it meant that Dutch should be gone and chattel slavery should be abolished. But people had different ideas about what life after that kind of emancipation ought to look like. And so the, the rebels are, are well organized. Uh, and in the initial rebellion, um, they move about from plantation to plantation to ascertain who's with them. Uh, I think the rebellion is organized both along ethnic lines and along plantation lines. I think on many plantations, there was somebody who was a leader who may have been uh, uh, thinking about uh, joining or um, uh, uh, who had contact with the rebels, often if they were of a, of a similar ethnic group. Um and so rebels went from plantation to plantation to ascertain who was going to be with them and who was going to be against them. And on many plantations, they would uh, force the the headmen, the drivers or bombas, as they were known in Berbis, to sort of declare whether they were going to join or not. If they were important men and they refused, they might take them captive um, they might try to recruit young men to join them in their army. Sometimes young women were taken along. Um, and, and what I see happening is that on many plantations, people begin to avoid the rebels. When the rebels come, they hide. Uh, and when the rebels leave, they come back and move back onto their plantations. And so it appears that for many people, um, uh, it, autonomy and freedom mean or, or freedom means autonomy, really, that what people want is to not be ruled by the Dutch, not be told what to do and how to live their lives, but they also don't want to be told what to do by the rebels. They also don't want to be forced by the rebels to give up their sons or share their resources or um, be put to work by the rebels. And so people... Um, 
are eager to see the Dutch gone, but they're also eager to maintain their independence. And I give the example of a particularly uh, well-documented plantation in the book called Postlust, where the owner uh, writes a number of letters, um, both during and afterwards, where he says, when the rebellion broke out, I, I was really afraid and I was going to flee to a neighboring colony and I was going to take all my enslaved people with them. He had 18 enslaved people on his plantations. And they said, uh, no, master, no, we want to stay here. You go. Uh, we'll be okay. We don't want to leave our gardens. Um, and they offered to carry his luggage and they packed him off to neighboring Demerara. They took him all the way over there, took uh, three days and three nights to move there. And when they were really close to Demerara, they abandoned him. They took all his luggage and they abandoned him and his family and they went back to the plantation and they lived there by themselves for the next six months or so, hiding whenever a uh, Dutch soldier showed up or Native Americans showed up or rebels showed up. Eventually, these folks cannot avoid being pulled into the rebellion. And in the end, only a small number of them survive. But it's clear that what they wanted to do was to live there in peace and to farm their uh, their gardens as 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 small peasants and to and to not really be have their surplus taken or have their or have their labor be appropriated. And I think there were many people like that. Although it's not as if I have many bold declarations of people stating this in lengthy statements like we have for the American Revolution, I'm deducting it mostly from people's behavior and from uh, some of the statements I have from spies or some of the things people said in these interrogations. Hmm. Several key rebels take a central role in your narrative, um, but none, I think, is as important as um, a rebel leader by the name of, um, I'm going to call him Kofi, uh, the English equivalent. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, Kofi and how might his ethnic background, if at all, help to explain his ability to lead um, a, such a massive rebellion? Yes. Well, um, Kofi, as he's called in Dutch, or probably his uh, name was Kofi, uh, which is an Aka name, uh, Gold Coast related, and that is also more than likely where he was from. We think that he came to Berbice as a child. Uh, several people claim that in their interrogations, but I know much less about him than I wished I did the Dutch in their interrogations, don't allow people to talk freely. They ask very targeted questions and they only write down those portions of the answers that are germane much of the time to those questions. And they're interested in things like who destroyed Dutch property, who killed Dutch people, which they call Christian murder, and who committed arson. Uh, and so relatively few people bring him up, but he was first apparently a house servant, later trained as a cooper. Um, so he is a highly assimilated uh, African. Um, he must have been very charismatic because that's what Akan people prize in their leaders. Um, people mention in there, one man mentions in, in his interrogation that Kofi was made the leader because he was so wise and knowledgeable. 
uh, and even a Dutch planter talks about uh, what an what an incredible man he was. He lived on the plantation uh, of a very notorious uh, taskmaster. Master in the in Berbiso, he experienced the horrors of Dutch slavery uh, firsthand. Um, I don't know how old he was by the time this happened, whether he had children, what he looked like. He probably had the facial scarring uh, or identifications that his mother would have made for him when he was still a child in probably what is now Ghana. Um, So he identified as Amina, which is the, the term that the Dutch used for people who came from the Gold Coast, where the Dutch had a slaving fort uh, uh, in in uh, called uh, Castle Mina, and uh, these were mostly people who spoke Akan and Ga, and who would have in Africa not necessarily considered themselves to be one people because they would have belonged to different ethnic and and uh, and political uh, uh, polities but in the new world people coalesced around these diasporic identities that were sort of amalgamations of what may have existed in Africa and people who spo- who spoke similar languages may have had some similar cultural outlooks came from uh, specific geographic areas in west and west central Africa came together and the Amina were apparently a powerful group in Berbis. I have found no reference to them before the rebellion, uh, but during the rebellion, they dominate. They dominate the rebellion and all the major leaders are Amina. And I think that Kofi drew on that to um, to pull his trusted people together, to uh, create a sense of cohesion he sets up a government. Uh, in fact, he he divides his government between sort of a civil arm and a military arm, which is common also in West Africa, also common among Maroons, uh, who are people who escape European uh, chattel slavery and set up independent villages in the hinterlands. And so he has a, a civil government and there's a military government, which is headed by his second in command, Captain Akara. And so Coffee is a is a very bold thinker and a charismatic man who is able to keep the revolution or the rebellion together for a long time. Yeah, Kofi, um, he may not have been spoken of, as you pointed out in the testimonies during the the investigations by the Dutch. But he did manage to leave um, written records um, through his own communications um, of forms of diplomacy, if we will, um, in negotiating with the Dutch. And I thought this might be an opportunity for you to come back to a topic that you referenced earlier um, about the the sources that you were able to find in the Netherlands that even allowed you to get a sense of who these um, individuals were and, and, and what they were seeking. Um, how did you handle um, understanding their voices oftentimes interpreted through um, Dutch officials or through scribes, you know, um, trying to translate um, not just, you know, language, but ideas coming from rebel leaders or enslaved peoples more generally. Thank you. Yeah, that that's a big question. So there were two two sets of sources that I had that 
gave me a sense of who the rebels were and what they wanted. One were these 900 or 898 um, interrogations, as the Dutch called them, which were the, uh, the, the, the which in which they questioned both people who were suspected of, of having been rebels and people who had been bystanders in this sort of kangaroo court that they set up, which in the end uh, condemned 125 people to be executed in rather gruesome ways. And these interrogations are uh, are problematic, obviously. They're obtained under duress. Uh, people's words are rendered in standard Dutch when they probably spoke Creole, uh, a Berbice uh, Creole called Dutch Berbice, in other cases, uh, enslaved people were brought in to translate African languages. Once in a while, the scribe will say, the clerk will say, nobody could speak, nobody could be found who spoke this person's language. So we're, we're not going to ask him any questions. So these records are problematic. They're, they're, they render people's words in the third person. They are translated. They are obtained under duress. Um, they're often, people's answers are shortened. Sometimes the clerk will even say, he said a lot more, but it wasn't relevant. Of course, those were the times I was really wanted to know what, what the person said. On the other hand, they're all we have. So, so I, I had to use them. And there are precedents. Historians have used records obtained under duress for a long time, whether they be uh, gulag records or records from the Inquisition in the early modern period. Um, I used them by triangulating them, so comparing people's testimony against each other, making huge spreadsheets, but also comparing what people said against what I what I found in the records from Native American spies or uh, men who uh, of African descent who had joined the Dutch who spied on the rebels or people who escaped from the rebels and told the Dutch things. And then the second set of records I had were this correspondence that Kofi uh, initiated where he was clearly trying to negotiate with the Dutch uh, first in the spring and later in the summer of 1763, trying to end the rebellion um, uh, through peaceful means rather than than through military action. And those letters are initially written by uh, one of Kofi's uh, fellow leaders, a man named Prince, who apparently had learned how to write. And But his Dutch is, as you may imagine, very uh, rudimentary. And so the letters are somewhat difficult to understand. Later on, the rebels are joined by uh, a remnant of a regiment of Dutch soldiers who are sent from neighboring Suriname. Uh, they mutiny because they're very unhappy with their work conditions in Berbis in the midst of the rebellion. And a number of these men end up joining the rebels. And one of them, their sergeant, who's a German guy, ends up writing the second set of letters for Kofi. You can tell because the inflection is very German. The Dutch is very German sounding. And so Kofi's letters are all written not by him, and that raises issues of, uh, he no doubt dictated these letters, but did they then read them back to him? How could he be 100% sure that what he had said is also what was in the letters if he couldn't read them himself? Maybe he could, he could read a little bit and he could double check. So 
So these letters are also problematic and, and complicated to interpret, partly because the Dutch is so um, broken is kind of a negative term, but it, it's hard to understand. The grammar is, uh, is, is difficult. Yet again, though, we, we get a sense of what Kofi wanted, what he was after. And as such, those records are really important. They're not the only such records we have in the history of the Atlantic world. Um, but Kofi was particularly bold in, in what he wanted and what he asked for. So you decided to chronicle this nearly forgotten episode of self-liberation among African-descended peoples in the Americas by choosing to publish your your work, not in the traditional academic press for, for us uh, professional academic historians, but through a, a trade press. I was wondering, who are you hoping might pick up this book? Well, when I um, first started thinking about the topic, I was actually thinking a lot about how little Dutch people know about their own involvement in Atlantic slavery and the history of the slave trade. And I had sort of found that appalling. And so I thought if I write the book as a narrative that people will find interesting to read, I will be able to reach more people and the chances that it will be translated into Dutch will be greater. Um, secondly, I also, it, it is such an amazing story, the fact that Kofi is negotiating with the Dutch as an equal, that he's basically saying, let's divide Berbis in two. I, I will have my own colony here and I will, I will want to trade in the Atlantic market. And it's clear that he wants to keep uh, plantation uh, plantations going with some sort of likely forced labor because few people would have wanted to work on those plantations voluntarily. Um, the fact that uh, Native Americans are involved, mostly on the side of the Dutch, the fact that there are large numbers of people who don't want to participate, but who are nevertheless, I think, very heroic in, in their desire for autonomy and their and their careful maneuvering, trying to maintain their independence. It, it's such an amazing story that I felt uh, for Americans and Guianese too, the more I could tell it as a story that anybody might want to pick up, not just students and faculty members, the more chance there would be that this amazing story would become known. And I'm very happy it is coming out in Dutch. It will be published in January by a Dutch press. It was supposed to come out in August, but those plans were changed because of Corona. It's uh, time to coincide with a major exhibit on slavery uh, in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, which will be partially online now because of Corona. So people can look it up. And that's the first major exhibit on slavery the Rijksmuseum has organized. So there are Black Lives Matter has had a big effect in the Netherlands. And so there is a hunger, I think, both among people of color in the Netherlands and white people to learn more about slavery. And then I've given a number of conversations or Zoom talks in Guyana, and people there have been very enthusiastic about the work and very interested in these Dutch records, which have recently all been put online by the Dutch archives, but they're, of course, in Dutch. And so during a recent Zoom talk that I gave that 
that attracted a, a lot of um, people in the chat. People were saying, "Why don't we have these records? And why don't we? Why haven't we gotten a Dutch translation?" And I was able to put the organizer of this um, Guyanese organization in touch with the Dutch archives, and the Dutch archives have agreed to provide a Dutch translation of these interrogations. So. I think this will mean that Guyanese people will be able to interpret these records for themselves. So I think the fact that I'm publishing with a trade press has sort of accomplished what I had hoped, which is that this absolutely fascinating story that takes place smack in the middle at the beginning of the age of revolution and is very much a part of that age of revolution is is getting more attention as, as it should. Marjorie, now that you've um, come to sort of a conclusion with this project, or or there might be some ongoing um, aspects of it that are, are continuing, I'm curious to hear what you're working on now. Are there smaller or large projects that are underway? Well, I'm writing an, either a long article or perhaps a really short book, depending on what I find, on two men who are leaders in the Berbice Rebellion. Accra and Gusari, and towards the end of the rebellion, they uh, negotiate with the Dutch uh, that in exchange for their lives, they will help the Dutch hunt down rebels who are hiding in the bush. They then, when the rebellion is suppressed, move to Holland with the Dutch, where they are drummers in the Dutch army for eight years. And then they travel with the famous Stedman to Suriname when the Dutch sent an army to Suriname to fight Surinamese Maroons. And they become Maroon fighters. And I found one of them in the archives as late as 1800 when Accra gets a pension for having been a Dutch soldier. I think I know what slave ship that man, that man was forced uh, on to come to Berbice in around 1745. So he must have been born at least in 1730. So I'm very interested in his and Gusari's long lives that sort of mix our categories of collaboration and resistance in a way that probably reflects what goes on in our own lives. Most of us both rebel and collaborate in various ways. Um, So I'm interested in looking at them in greater depth depending on what I find once the archives reopen in the Netherlands. And beyond that, there is so much work to do in the Berbice records. I'm a little tempted. I'm also thinking about a totally different project that deals with Nazi art dealing in World War II Holland, and again, deals with this issue of collaboration. So I'm going to have to wait till the archives open back up and I can go explore and see what I find and, and, and what most needs to be done. Marjolene, you can't see me right now, but I have a huge smile on my face as I heard you lay out um, these two, um, you know, kind of burgeoning projects. And, and I'm, I'm particularly excited to, to see them develop and, and to read them um, in, their, in their published form. I want to thank you for um, agreeing to speak with me today on New Books Network. Oh, it has been such a pleasure. I I really appreciate it. And uh, it's been a, a really nice conversation. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed your work. You can find a link to Blood on the River, a chronicle of mutiny and freedom on the Wild Coast on New Books Network. Until next time.